Jacob, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. We just got back from a break. Mm. And we have extended the poetry unit. I want to know how it's going for you. <laughs> uh, do you like the poetry unit or not? And what did you do on your break? Did you have a good time? I've got lots of questions, Jacob. Uh, we haven't really had a chance to talk. That's so funny. We really haven't, surprisingly enough. You know, you think we would more often. We actually, I think mm-hmm. today was like the first day we actually had time to sit down and even say anything, really. Right. Um, no, I mean, for the break was good. I struggle with the break. I didn't get as much done as possible. I had such a great list of things to do uh, on our last episode where I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this with a wiffle ball bat. And it just never really panned out the way it was supposed to, uh, which is which is fine. I, I, I did. Uh, I, I worked on some conceptual stuff is what I did. I thought I was more prepared. But really, you know what happens sometimes? Is and this is why I like working so much. Is I, I I spend so much time fitting in everything I want to do within a schedule that it makes me more productive. Like um, this actually connects to why I'm going to respond the way I'm going to respond to this poetry question. But this okay. our our partner she goes. We were talking about the poetry unit because I have may or may not have said something. Uh, the other day, just as I was walking by, um, and it may or may not have been a snarky comment. She goes, how do you write books? <laughs> and I said, well, I go, I, I, everything I do that's creative is it's not spur of the moment. Some of it is like my music is spur of the moment sometimes because it's more of a hobby that I infuse into the podcast and also just do for fun. But like anything that is something like I want to create, whether it's a um, a podcast, so to speak, but less so that's kind of on a schedule basis. Now it's just a part of the work process, but like anything extracurricular. So like, uh, poetry that I do or writing fiction, which I love to do or writing just normal poetry or making a video or anything that's creative like that. Those are very much like in the moment. So an idea might percolate for six months, two weeks, a day, and then something, it just has to time just right. I have to be at the right moment where whatever I need to do, I can procrastinate just long enough, but not so long that like I can just push it off forever. So I got to get whatever extra thing I need to get done, done. And then I end up making, you know, like when I did my last, uh, slam video, which was oblivion, uh, that one I, I made in a day. I had most of it written, already sort of, I tightened it up and then I was like, boom, video edited, took like eight hours and then it was done and then it was over and I was out. And that's kind of how I operate as a human being. I'm very quick. I'm very, and I do the same with books. Uh, Teach me teacher. I wrote the majority of that over breaks and I set like a word goal. I remember setting like for Thanksgiving, I was like 10,000 words for things, uh, for teach me teacher during Thanksgiving. And that's what I went. And then Christmas, I just doubled it. I did 20,000 words. And I think I exceeded that. Same for Rightfully Empowered. Except for Rightfully Empowered, I started in the summer. So I had more time. But I still dawdled. I still, most of Rightfully Empowered wasn't written in the summer because I have too much time, right? It messes me up. Mm -hmm. It was written in Thanksgiving, Christmas, weekends, that type of schedule. Because it's like, man, I got to go. So I put on my 
headphones. I put on my jazzy lo-fi hip-hop that I get on YouTube, and I just type for until I can't anymore, which is usually around 2,000 words a day. Um, if I'm really going, 4,000, 5,000 words a day, which Rightfully Empowered did do that. I had days where I did like 5,000, 8,000 words. So anyway, this connects to all of this because... <laughs> We have this poetry unit, Ochoa, where I yes. I think I've said this. I'm in, enjoying it, by the way. In, Just you keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we 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 have these this unit, and I love poetry. I, I probably use poetry more than any other genre in my classroom. Uh, but I hate units. I despise units that go too long. They drive me insane. They mess with everything that I have to do, especially if I have a project involved. Lord have mercy on my own soul because if a project's going forever, I'm losing my mind. And that's currently where I'm at. I've had a, this project that I have going. I have it going. It was supposed to end. It was supposed to be done. Like by next or not next week, it's supposed to be really done this week. Uh, I extended it. We were supposed to have a test already. We extended it. We had we had scheduling conflicts. It makes sense to extend it. But we basically took a, a three and a half week unit and kind of made it a full six weeks. And it's just, you know, it's fine. I'm here for it. It's great. We did it for the good of the team. But on the inside, I'm dying on the inside, and I'm like, good God, because it just it, it's too wide. I don't know what it is about how I operate, but it's how I work creatively. It's how I teach. It's just I have – I need finite time, and then I'm like, sweet, and I just get it all in. But when I have too much space, I'm meandering too much, and it just – it ruins my flow, Ocho. It just ruins probably – a little bit hyperbolic. It jacks with my flow. So that's where I'm at. This is the rant that I had for our partner, by the way. I was like, you know what I hate? I hate nine-year units. And, she, and that's when she goes, how do you write books? So I was being extreme there. But that's my answer. I'm not – by the way, none of this is negative. I'm being, I'm being a little facetious with all of this. But still, there is a part of me that is dying on the inside. So, you know, take that with whatever you will, fine listeners of Craft and Draft. Well, with that, everybody, welcome to Craft and Trout. <laughs> I'm Pam Ochoa, who loves poetry. There's Jacob Chastain, who says he does, but now do we? Does he? Because he doesn't like poetry units. Anyway, <laughs> welcome. What are we going to talk about today, Jacob? You know, unless you've been living under a rock, dear listeners, and Ochoa, I don't know, sometimes you Cause, disappear. Because sometimes <laughs> I do live under a rock. <laughs> You'll say, oh, did you know this is going on? I'm going, mm, no. Yeah, so we have a little, you know, something, something. Uh, there. <laughs> so there's there's things going on. There's There's our book bans happening all over the place. There are people marching to their educational board meetings all across the United States. Uh, in there, it's, it's people, I, I don't know. I don't really, we're going to get into why I suppose, but we're, we're talking about that. We're, we're not talking about the current issues though. We're not, it's not a current issue necessarily that we're talking about, but rather what we're asking as English teachers, as teachers who love the written word, who love choice, who love books, our question on this podcast today is when does a book get itself out of a school? Is there ever a time? Where you have to go, no, this is not appropriate for this age. This is not appropriate for my class. It's not appropriate for a classroom library. Is there a difference between classroom libraries and school libraries? When is a school inappropriate for elementary but good for middle? When is a, when is a book okay for high school but inappropriate 
for middle school? Those are all the questions that we're going to dive into uh, today on Craft and Draft. Before we do that, though, uh, I want to, I want, I want to, I have two emails. They're not questions. They're more like comments, but I figured, you know, we can bring in some comments in here. You know, not everyone has a question. I feel like anytime that we interact, you know, we'd send, usually what happens is I get these emails to my, they're, they're connected to my personal email account. So I end up just screenshotting them and sharing them with Ochoa. And, you know, that's how we bounce ideas and we'll laugh about them or whatever. But I want to do a uh, a shout out to Karen, who thought our phonetically uh, focused conversation was pretty funny. You know, she had just, you know, she thanked us for the episode and insight. She said she laughed out loud uh, and everything else. So shout out to Karen for reaching back out. We do appreciate. Yeah, thank you. Um, we're glad that we could uh, offer whatever insight we offered on that episode. Um, but I have another one from a, a, a one of probably one of the the most passionate listeners I have. Right, she's been around. I've I've seen her name pop up forever. She's I mean she's been a part of the Teach Me Teacher crew for a while. I think she's very English focused. So Teach Me Teacher. I think sometimes you know I go off in all kinds of different directions on that podcast these days. And I think Craft and Draft, you know, because we're so focused on reading and writing workshop and everything else. I think she's kind of migrated over here. But I was so excited to see her name. Name pop up over here. Her name's Natalie. Natalie says, Hi, Jacob and Pan. This isn't a question, but a comment. It says, I was listening to your latest podcast about why people seem to be against students being able to free read. What's the benefit? When I taught sixth grade ELA, I gave students large chunks of time to independently read. I have always loved reading, and I think it is because I was given a lot of choice in what I read. There was more than one time our math teacher would come into the room, she taught after me, and make a comment about how she wished she could just let her students work on math endlessly. She didn't see the benefit. I explained to her that when I taught fifth grade all subjects, my students had uh, me math time before each class. Students had an opportunity to create and solve their own math equations. They could be basic or more complex. They loved it. Some would stick with basic equations, but most challenged themselves. And then we would confer as to whether or not they had the correct answer or what steps they took to get the answer. They loved it. I also had uh, MS for me science and me social studies, where twice a week we would begin science and social studies with them reading a book about the subject of science or social studies. They knew we had a curriculum to follow, but I wanted them to also dig deeper into subjects that interest me. So says, lastly, the one thing I regularly asked them to do during uh, ELA uh, was read and enjoy time, was find at least one word in their reading they would want to incorporate in their own writing and write in their craft book. This was the main way they increased their vocabulary. Sorry so long, but choice is where real learning takes place. I just thought that was a really insightful thing because, I mean, you've taught more subjects than I have. I did teach social studies. I was a horrible teacher when I did it. So there was no me time. There was no me social studies time or, you know, there was none of that going on. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I I figured just for a second, we could honor this idea. I mean, when you were, have choice in your other subjects, was it as incorporated? Did you have something similar? Did you see the benefits of that too? Well, I do see the benefits of that. I don't know if it was identical to that. I mean, I think I wish I'd have done that. That would have been great. That's why I wanted to read it. I was like, for anyone reading that isn't maybe just focused on English, we have elementary teachers that Mm -hmm. listen to this that might have uh, multiple subjects. I was like, this is a genius idea. Well, I do know, though, that when I would 
address my students in other subjects. I would I would address them as scientists. I would say, okay, scientists, here's what we're going to be doing. I'd say, okay, mathematicians, which I didn't teach math, but uh, but I would geography. Ge- uh, you know, I would I would uh, talk about that, and and I wanted them to think in a way that uh, they could work on their work, you know, and think like a geographer or think like a historian. Uh, when we created maps, I always allowed choice in their maps in the way that they wanted to go about uh, with their medium that they wanted to create. All of my kids created their own maps, but they could add their own little touches to it. And so they had freedom there, you know, depending on what it was. So, yeah, I think that would have been, uh, God, I wish I would have thought of that. That just upsets me a little bit. No, really, truly, it's great. I think that's awesome, and I'm glad she shared, Natalie. Thank you so much, because I agree with her. I think choice is where the learning happens. It's like when we were writing today, I put them in in kind of a box because I asked them to write in a particular poetic form, but they could choose their own topic. And because they could choose their own topic about a because my students are creating an anthology, right? They're putting together their own anthology, poetic anthology, poetry anthology. And so they've all chosen a theme. So when I said, well, make sure when you write, you write using your theme. That way you can have a poem for your book when you're finished. And you can understand this uh, this type of poetry better. And when I did that, the students were like, oh, okay. Oh, I got an idea. And it was wonderful today because this one student, at, right when it was all done, I said, so what is your, she wrote this beautiful, it's a sonnet. We did sonnets today. And so she had her 14 line sonnet. She had all of the the poetic, you know, the stanzas correct and the quatrains and she did the couplets and then she had the the right rhyme scheme. And I mean, but the thing is, is when she wrote it, it, the tone of it started, or the mood was kind of happy. And then all of a sudden it, you realize in the couplet that she was really wishing for her mom to come back, but she didn't realize it the way she did that. Cause she goes, I just wish my mom would have stayed. It, it's really a beautiful piece. And so I said, well, what is your theme about in your book? And she goes, well, it's about change. But I really today wanted to write about my mom. And she goes, oh, my gosh, that is about change. It was a change in my life. I can include this in my piece. Oh, my goodness, Miss Ochoa. You know, so it was just really neat. And then so the whole day, the rest of that day, she was like, y'all, I really wrote a poem. I wrote a real poem. I mean, it was just really neat. But I think she would not have done that if I had said, do this topic just go through this like a worksheet. And then we just went on, okay, that's what sonnet form looks like. But no, I, I showed them a sonnet poem. I did not show them a Shakespearean poem. I showed them a poem that, you know, was anonymous that I think probably a, a student had written, but it was one that I had found. And I thought, well, this will work. And so I showed them that and then we studied it. So I didn't even tell them what a sonnet was about, right? What I did do and say, let's study this sonnet and let's find out what this person did. I've already told you it's a sonnet. So let's see what we're going to use this to find out what sonnets include as far as their characteristics, what are the elements. And so together we all studied that. And then, so I think that helped them. So it was really cool. I mean, I think it was turned out to be a pretty good thing. So I not everything that they have done has been in a form. I just kind of want to show them a few forms so they understand that 
that it's that meter and rhyme and the way that poets choose to put it together uh, will help with their meaning and all of that. So I thought, let them experiment with it. Anyway, it was cool. So, but I think it was in that choice is when she made those aha moments. I don't think if, if I had not given choice, we had not gotten there. So it was just really a nice day uh, in that moment. Well, and here, you know, this I think ties into our bigger conversation, but this, we, we talk about choice a lot, right? We, we talk, we've, we've had episodes mm-hmm. where we talk about, you know, what, why choice actually applies rigor and why it, it, it does so many things. And we talked about the, the challenge of, you know, maintaining momentum during choice because it, it's, and this come like I said, this is going to connect to our bigger conversation, I think. But with freedom comes responsibility. I had this conversation with one of my blocks mm. today, actually, because they had they came back from Thanksgiving break and they were being kind of wild. You heard me have my various complaints together when I was going over these, uh, <laughs> you know, with them. But I, I sat them down today and I go, all right, guys, here's the thing. I know for a fact I am one of the most lenient teachers. On this campus, when it comes to some of the harder rules that we have, I, hands down, I am definitely one of them, right? And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I go, here's the thing: with freedom comes responsibility. I was like, you don't get to have this if you're going to treat my room like this. If you're going to treat the time that I'm giving you to read and write like this, you know. And and they fixed it, right? That's just, that's what happens when kids are kind of used to it. They come back. You kind of have to reestablish the norms or whatever. But this is the thing: when it comes to writing and reading. When you're so focused on choice, it's this idea that you kids are not always going to be uh, they're not always going to make the right decision. They're not always going to be uh, in the right areas that they need to be right because choice is hard. Most of us can't even make. It, like, imagine how many bad choices we make during the day as adults, right? Like, right. I, I sometimes like I'll choose to buy a Snickers. Like, that's probably not a good choice, right? Or I'll choose to to not do the dishes, or you know, like all of these things that go down, like just all day. Now imagine being a kid and you're given choice, and now some people use this as a a reason to be like, well, that's why they shouldn't have that, right? We should clamp down and guide them and kind of make them lockstep. But with great yeah, mystery, right? With great meandering of choice comes great achievement and real achievement, right? Now that girl's success is spurred on by your teaching and you set up the, the parameters to get her to where this moment was and you gave her the necessary things. But because choice was at the center of it and you empowered it with choice, you had an authentic moment where she broke through. She made a actual discovery within her own work, right? And mm-hmm. I think that is is why this process becomes addictive because it's all about okay, what what do I need to put here? What do I need to tweak to make that moment happen? Because that's what we're all looking for. Whether it's in reading or writing, we're looking for that moment where things just click. Now, let's let's transition over to our topic before this whole thing is about choice because and it kind of is but when in reading right the reason why we love free choice in reading so much is because we want students to have that moment when they've selected a book or they've been given a book but you know within that kind of free choice or whatever and they're going at it and there's there's no reading log necessarily there's no there's no nothing it's them and a book 
and they finally go, holy crap, this is good, right? Mm -hmm. They look at you and go, oh, my God, I've never read a book like this. So this is the first book I've ever finished, right? And now Mm -hmm. you got them. And in the work that we do, this is a very difficult thing because we work with middle schoolers. We're talking about it today. We Our age group is roughly 11-year-olds to 14-year-olds. This is a transition years from being a child to being a young adult teenager. And these are crazy years. This is why people always say middle school teachers have lost their minds. And, you know, like people go, you know, I, I don't know how people teach seventh grade and uh, all this other stuff is because it's so complex. And because of that, I think this poses an interesting problem for us when it comes to what books should be allowed in the classroom, what books should be allowed in our school library. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, where where do we want to start, Ochoa? Because th- that's my question. Because there, there's so many points of intersection where we can kind of jump in here. But when it comes to – maybe we should start with our beliefs about what censorship is. I think that that's probably actually a fair place to be. I mean, so when you think of like your own just in book censorship uh, – Maybe, I don't know, censorship might be a strong word, but book restrictions or whatever you want to apply. What's your guiding philosophy in terms of your work with schools specifically? How does this – do you have a a general belief about something or – I don't know. I mean, how do you take it? When when this pops up, what do you think about? Well, I I mean – I won't lie. I mean, my own values play a role in what I choose to have in my right library a lot of times. Um, so in a way, I do restrict my classroom li- library to, to a degree. Um, but that's just based on what I feel like I can justify on my shelf. You know, like if if I could, if I had a conversation with a parent, could I have a decent conversation with that parent about that book? You know, but I do feel that that's, you know, I just don't have it out there. It's not that I, if they bring it into my room and that's what they're reading, I'm not going to keep them from reading that book if their parents agree with it, or I'm not even going to ask them if they bring it usually, you know, whatever book it might be. But uh, as far as, as censorship itself, I, I just really feel like the minute we start getting rid of books and we determine completely the what our students can and cannot read based on our own beliefs right then i think we are hindering society to be honest i mean i think that i just i'm not really for censorship i'm not for banning a book uh to be honest but i don't know i mean i have a hard that's really a hard question, to be honest, because it is. I, in in a way, I don't I agree with it, but I'm very I'm I'm fairly conservative, and so with that, and I've been a mom, and I have, as a mother, have asked my students, my children, my own personal children, not to read <clears throat> certain books based on what I want in my house. But what I want in my house may not be, it may not bother somebody in their house. So I don't have the right, I don't feel, to impose my beliefs on to someone else in, in the form of book banning or book whatever. So 
I have, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're good. I just think that it was easier when I was younger. Now yeah. it seems like they're writing about so many different things that I personally don't completely agree with yep. uh, in my own personal values, but I'm not going to make that judgment on someone else. I don't, I don't think I need to judge others. So I think I, I love this, uh, this quote that Donalyn Miller had posted, um, a few days ago and you know, you know me, like uh, I, I like what Donalyn Miller posts something and I listen and she had a really interesting post that said, she said, parents absolutely get to decide what books their kids read or don't, but their jurisdiction doesn't extend to other people's children. She says, okay. our family and many others want our kids, grandkids to read accurate history and the rich stories of all of humanity. Leave our kids alone. Right. And I think this is, I don't, I, in my mind, I can't see how any well-meaning, thoughtful person could say that they disagree with that. They might disagree with what her beliefs are specifically, but to say that, of course, parents have the right to say what their kids consume or anything like that, I think that's kind of a no-brainer, right? I think that is that, that's just a fundamental fact. And then this idea that, but because... I believe you have that right. That means I believe I have that right. And if I believe my kids should have access to this, but you don't, then who has the right to say this doesn't belong in a school? When is that line crossed, right? And you found something. We talked a little bit about off air. You found a, 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 a court ruling that had happened. I think this might bring us some illumination. It might help us guide this conversation a little bit. So w- will you uh, inform right. the listeners of what you discovered? Well, I don't know the history of this uh, as far as like the full history of it. I'd have to research this a little bit more. But I did find a Supreme Court um, ruling uh, in 1982, which was my senior year in high school, by the way. Those of you all really want to know how old I am. Uh, Board of Education, Island Trees Union Free School District versus Pico. 1982 ruled five to four. So that's pretty close right there, you know, as far as the ruling goes. But that public public schools can bar books, so they say they can, that are pervasively vulgar or not right for the curriculum. But they cannot remove books simply because they dislike the ideas contained in those books. So I think what you have to do, it says here, the court's decision was, however, narrow, applying only to the removal of books from school library shelves. So I think what that tells me is if I'm going to require a book for the students to read, I cannot require them to read a book that's pervasively vulgar if it is not right for my curriculum. So I have to follow my curriculum first and foremost. And then in the school library, just because I don't like what your family says is okay, because I don't have the same belief system that you do, so to speak, or my neighbor, whatever, I don't have the right to request that all of those books get moved, removed from the, the school library. But it's a pretty tight uh, decision. Well, and I so. think I think the interesting part of that, wh- you know, whether this is, you know, we, we obviously don't know the history of this, but the 
our uh that that pervasively vulgar term, right? Or or not right for the curriculum. Those are vague definitions of what could be because I I mean I know for a fact like there what you like would find vulgar like pervasively vulgar like I probably wouldn't just because we're literally from different generations. <laughs> In 19, I told you I was from 1982, so yeah. I, I don't remember pervasively vulgar books that were on my library shelves to begin with, exactly. to be honest. Well, uh, I just don't remember that. And we didn't have classroom libraries back then either, I don't, at least where, where I and I grew up right down the street. So, And I, I in, think... In Donalyn Miller's, where she grew up, same school. Oh, so there you have it. Mm-hmm. But the it, I think this is where you know the there's flame wars all over the internet, and you know I sometimes I jump in, sometimes I, most of the time I'm just reading and just listening to different opinions on stuff. And I think the the world of social media would love to have parents, teachers, advocates believe that there is a black and white definition of what should not be in schools. And I I think that in and of itself, I think it's a a fallacy just kind of on its face, but I think exploring it is interesting because I was going through this own thought experiment and I was like, okay, so I don't agree with what a lot of these people are saying. Sometimes they, they show a book, right? Especially in recent times, like, you know, something pops up on my Twitter feed. I'm like, well, you know, like, I understand why someone might be against this having in, on a school. And then I go, so I ask myself, I go, what do I think? Do I or do I not believe this should not be in a school? And I was like, well, what constitutes that? At what point does something change? Um, I think it is no secret that in America, very specifically, there is a taboo around anything that is sexualized, right? Like this is, I think that is a, a non, as undebatable, right? We we will let kids consume violence all day long before there's anything that is sexualized. And I've always thought that was interesting just from a side note of like, man, like murdering people's a crime, but sex isn't, right? So like... <laughs> Like just having, you know, just that alone has always been just an interesting thing. I'm not here to debate that. Like I don't, that's, that is so culturally ingrained. I'm not even, even trying to have that debate. But what I'm curious about is at what point does something constitute vulgarity? And when is it so vulgar that no kid between sixth and eighth grade can have access to it freely in in the library, right? Because we have in our district, we have rules that kind of govern our public, our like our library that everyone has access to. And then there's some rules that, well, let's start at the top. There's rules that are like, hey, you can't like there's a list of books that we could assign and we can give out. Like we have the list, it exists, books have been vetted, like that, that list exists. And if we want to add something to it, there's a process to it. Now, then there's like another list that librarians play with that this is what they can kind of have in the library and they all talk to each other and they read them and there's like a whole library association of these people being advocates for these books and saying what should be on a list, what should not. And then there's more a loose list that's like we have these classroom libraries that aren't really governed necessarily. But we do – there are some books that are technically banned 
from our campus, right? Like, uh, mm-hmm. um, uh, what's the name of the book? Uh, the, the absolute true driver part-time Indian. Like that book is banned in our district up until 12th grade of high school. Like, right. Like, so no one should really have that in their libraries. They might, but like you shouldn't. Right. But it's not right. like no one's like, you know, there's not like the book police, like coming in and checking stuff. I'm sure there's teachers right. in high school that have it in their libraries, but it's just one example. And I think that I've read that book and I understand why people find it offensive. But if I read that and I was like, should this not be in middle school? I don't know. I mean, there's some sexualized things in it. I don't think it's particularly vulgar. I think it's something that offends certain people that might be from a different generation, but it's written at a fairly low level. It's funny. And there's a lot of uh, really good stuff about identity. Personally, I would give the book three stars. So it's not even like a great book, like three out of five. Like I don't actually love it, even though it won a bunch of awards. So I'm not even like defending this necessarily, but I, I told you this earlier today when we were deciding what we wanted to talk about on this podcast. And I want to say it on here because I think it's an interesting lens to look at this through, which is I listened to a gaming podcast and they were talking about censorship in games. And what they said, they were just talking about freedom in general and what censorship is. And they're like, in America, we have the freedom of speech. This is something that we value. This is very intrinsic into our democracy. It's intrinsic into so many things about our culture and what makes America great to a large degree. And he said, freedom of speech doesn't – It you don't care about freedom of speech with the good stuff because everyone loves the good stuff. Everyone, you know, the majority, it like likes certain things. He was like, freedom of speech matters most for the stuff that people disagree with. He was like, if you want a free society, you have to protect people you disagree with, right? You have to protect the people doing and saying things that are so against your core. Otherwise, you don't have freedom of speech. What you have is freedom of speech if you agree with the consensus. And when it comes to books, when it comes to ideas, you know, public education has been one of the main major drivers of democracy in America. It has been, you know, it, public education. I mean, just think about, um, uh, the, how the, the civil rights movement really came to head in public education, right? I mean, public education is at the core of so much of what this country has done and so much of the growth and all of these things. It's always been the center and it's been such a driver of that. So when we start banning books in mass. I mean, there was a Texas, uh, congressman who had like a list of, or, or, or a district, sorry. And like a list of like 800 books. And I'm like, there's no way you read all of those books. So when you start mass banning things because of this content or that content, I, I think it, it, it starts bro- broaching into, are we a country that values freedom of speech And if we are, at what point do we limit that because of age groups in public education? And I think, I think that's a deeply philosophical question that I don't know. We, you and I probably have a million answers to, and it might change our opinion on the day, but I know I've been, I I stepped on a soapbox there for a minute, but I think that's what we're playing with here. I mean, am I being too hyperbolic with this? I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think the minute you do limit speech, um, you know, I mean, I mean, this whole entire our our society, what was established because we were denied that opportunity 
um, as a as a society to have free speech wherever our immigrants came from, so to speak. And so one of the things they wanted to protect was the ability to have free speech because, and so I think you're right. I think, I think if you're going to have true free speech, then you have to, you have to embrace all the ideas and you don't have to, you don't have, when I say embrace, I mean, you have to listen to all of the ideas. You don't necessarily have to believe in all of those ideas. I wouldn't say you have to listen necessarily, but like let them exist, right? Let them exist. Yeah. But the thing is, is when you hear them, it's up to you as a uh, consumer of these thinkings, these thoughts to make up your own mind, your own opinion. And I think in a free society that, that we have is, I mean, we have the right to pursue the things that we want to pursue, right? The pursuit of happiness, the pursuit of, and so we have that right. And I think the minute that we start stepping on it for others, then one day it might be you that they're stepping on. So you have to be very careful, right? And and I think uh, as far as parents, uh, I do think as a parent, you have the right in your own home to determine what's okay for your, your, your children, based on your own beliefs, but I don't have the right to go into your home and tell you how you need to believe. And I think, I think in the public square, in our public libraries, in our school libraries, which is still public, right? Then I I don't think we have the right to determine what's in those, in those um, particular libraries. But this pervasively vulgar thing as a parent, I mean, I'm telling you, there are some books that I wish were not in the library as a sure. parent that I did not want my children reading. And guess what? They snuck. They still read it. <laughs> I did not stop them from which reading is, it. Which is why, well, which is why I think people push this so much because they know that if it's available, they're going to find it, right? Right. They, they people, like parents, like if you're, I mean, all you do is have to be around kids for a little bit to know that they're going to get away with whatever they can find access to, right? Like your right. censorship is not very powerful, but it's, it's, it's a weather of question of, okay. I, and I'm going to play devil's advocate just for a hot second, which is for them. It's like, okay, well, school shouldn't be a place where they have access to go around what I'm telling them. Well, and it is hard to take as a parent because, I I have raised children that like to go around whatever we had proposed and they use school to do so. So yeah, it's, it is a tough, a tough thing. Well, and I love, I, I don't know. You know what I hope? I'm going to say this right now before I forget. I hope beyond anything that we get uh, at least a few people that write in with their own ideas because I would love to interact with more people with this and read yeah. their comments and maybe challenge some of our points or add to the points or whatever mm-hmm. they want to do because I think this is such an important topic and this is a perfect podcast for this conversation because we just meander through these ideas all the time right, right. like this is we're not really we're not, we don't we walk our only agenda is that we want to build literacy with kids and so that doesn't necessarily mean kids should have access to everything, right? Like I, <laughs> like it, right. Well, I, and I don't want somebody coming in and, you know, 
dictating a hundred percent what I have on my bookshelves. And I, and I like really our system that we have right now. And it seems to me, our system is made up of a committee and the committee seems to be pretty broad based on the list that I've, I understand. And I think it needs to include all of the, um, our consumers or whatever, you know, our clients, if you will, the parents, as well as the business people, as well as um, teachers and librarians and, you know, anybody else that is deemed a part of your community. And I think with a the broad uh, group, and they're all vetting these books, and then based on that, then as a collective in the community and a representation of all of those that are in the community, and then they make the decision, then I'm like, okay, well, as a community, they've decided this is not what we want for our 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 people in our town. We just don't want our kids to. And I think as a community, you know, if you've made that decision, then you made that decision as a community. I, I'm really big on uh, community decisions versus somebody over from, I don't know, let's just say for the sake of, of anything from Montana coming over to Texas and telling us what we need to be doing. We know what's right for our own kids. And I don't want Texas going over there to Montana and saying, you know, this is what you need to have on your shelves. Cause every society is a bit different. People are gregarious. They, they collect in common places and um, with common values usually. And so I think as a collective, you should, vet the books I don't have a problem with vetting the books but I do know that if you're looking at this pervasively vulgar thinking I I, to me I think you have to look at the development of the students and where they are as a whole Uh, I think we talked about earlier today do we want elementary students reading or having access to the books that are in high school or in middle school at what point, and you mentioned it earlier, there's a book that is only allowed in our district at the high school level that was made by a committee decision, right? So, you know, I, I'm just thinking that maybe there is some sort of standard or some sort of level that, that you know, we don't want certain kids to at certain levels. Well, you know, age appropriateness, maybe my, maybe where I'm going with this. See, and I, here's where I might ruffle some feathers because people might be trucking along with me so far and they might truck along with me on social media because I've been sharing all the, you know, any post that advocates for book choice and everything like that. Like Jason Reynolds was recently in Texas and, you know, he, he's aware of the Texas controversies that have been happening around book bans and stuff like that. And it was giving Tuesday or giving Thursday or something like that. And he made a video and he goes, inspire of this. I, and he listed all of these independent bookstores in Austin, Houston, Dallas or whatever. He had bought all of these books and they're free. He was like, while, like while supplies last, you can go get these books in there. Some of them were his books, like all American boys and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of them were some other books like George is a big uh, band book uh, and stuff like that. And, Uh, None of them were books that I would consider what they could be banned, but I know that they're on the banned list, but they were, he was like, they're free, go get them, you know? And I just, I thought that was kind of cool from an author's perspective because even authors are coming out, like authors are speaking on this saying, you know, they're advocating not, you know, obviously they have a monetary, uh, 
<laughs> like, let, let's be, I want to be hundred percent fair. Like they have a monetary reason for wanting schools to have access to these books. Schools have a lot of money and you oh, get, yeah. you get your books in schools. I mean, you're selling copies. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why these authors would be advocates for that because it is a business. Let's not forget that part right. because I think right. that, that does color a little bit. I don't think it devalues what they're doing, but that is something to take into account. Now, this concept though, authors are stepping in because they talk about how there is when this process starts, when people start banning stuff willy-nilly and they start saying this and that, what happens is districts overreact. Principals overreact, teachers overreact, librarians overreact. And what they do is they go, well, I know these types of books speaking about these types of people are being banned. So I'm just not even going to order this, right? I'm not even going to read it. I'm not even going to do that. They call it, it's like a silence ban. It's like, yeah, your book might not be banned, but now it's not being bought. Now it's not being read because people are too, quote unquote, scared to do this. They're scared of the backlash. What if you're the, like, uh, think about it. I mean, what if you're the teacher that ends up on Fox News because you happen to have the wrong book? CNN with, News. Yeah, or CNN, right? Or at, <laughs> to be fair, I mean, come on, let's play, I guess. Let's I mean, go let's, there. Yeah. Hey, we're here. We're a fair podcast here, but that's right. That's the. The whatever it is, right? Whatever dichotomy you want to put there, you have the wrong book with the wrong student with the wrong parent with the means to make your life wrong, right? Like you, I mean, it's only one thing that happens, and then all of a sudden, your life is. I mean, it could be changed forever. I mean, there Mm -hmm. there are drastic decisions that can be made based on doing the wrong thing. But even though you, there was no nefarious. Point. And I think it's equally as important to talk about when we're talking about censorship, when, when we have people – and here's the thing. There are people who advocate for this behavior because I have, I have nothing wrong with parents saying, hey, I don't know if this is right. Could y'all review this, right? Or, hey, can we have a parent-teacher principal committee, right? Have, bring the parents in, right? Mm-hmm. Bring the kids in. Have a, a four-way uh, committee with students, parents admin and teachers, uh, five, I mean, bringing the librarians, everyone reads it, and you all come to your consensus in a district. I have no problem at all with people doing that process. But right. when, when people start just railing and causing as much ruckus as possible and scaring people into submission because they're afraid to do something, that's when my that's when my sensors come up. And I'm like, okay, well, this is now this isn't being mindful because we think this is bad for them. This is loud, rude, disrespectful people that don't care about other people's freedom. They only want what's right for them. And that's, I think that's the slippery slope that we have to mind. And I think that's why people, uh, get so sensitive about this. Now with that said, I'm about to strong arm the other side. So I feel like I made that case. Now the other side is in elementary school. I don't believe that really there should be any sexual situations in elementary school books. I don't. I think that's fair. And there's people that might listen to this and are like, all right, Chester, you lost me. I'm done. Right? They might have a book in mind and maybe they could prove me wrong. But I think that is, that's a hard line in elementary because, I mean, it's, it's young. But here's the thing. Yeah. Those, there are places in America where those books exist and those parents are angry and talking about it. And I find myself as pro-freedom, pro-all of this going – 
I get it. I, I get why they would well, say Well, I mean, this. you have a student in elementary, right? I mean, you yeah. have a son. You, do you want him reading those books? Well, first, one, he only reads books about computers. But two. See, so you're he, safe. <laughs> I do have that. You don't book. have to worry about it. But, I had to worry about it. But he is incredibly <laughs> sensitive to content, right? So my for people that don't know, my son's autistic. So he has he's a little bit delayed. He he's very bright and he's incredibly intelligent in a million different ways, but he's very delayed like emotionally, right? So okay. like he just discovered, like, for instance, like he's in the fourth grade. Um, this might be normal for fourth graders, but like he's obsessed with like poop jokes and stuff like that. But like language was a big thing. Like he started using like swear words. Like I've <laughs> I told you stories just <laughs> off air, you know, like him we're just not doing that. him yelling like certain words and stuff. And we were like, well, I mean, w- like Kaylee and I, like we've been, uh, my wife and I, like we've had these conversations where, you know, obviously like we'll say something or whatever and he'll hear it. And I'm like, oh, maybe we shouldn't say that because he's starting to repeat stuff. But then he'll see YouTube videos. Like we don't police everything he does on the internet. Like, you know, he's on TikTok. He's doing all that. He doesn't do it the same way other kids do, but he still has access to this material, right? Like even if he's watching a computer building video, like the person might swear or do something. And we started going, well, okay, so now we have to have this conversation of when do we censor that, right? Like what restrictions do we have? And we, luckily he's cognitive, like we reason with him and we've come up with our solution for that and it's really helped. But, you know, it could be a situation where he comes into contact with something like that. He opens a graphic novel and in that graphic novel, there are images that he can't unsee. And now I got a whole other mess of worms that I have to deal with. And it's not like I'm trying to shelter him from the facts of life. It's like, is this something that should happen in an elementary school? And I find it hard to strong arm that argument. I find it difficult. Nah. No, I agree with you. I don't think it needs to be an elementary. I don't think we need to put these ideas in kids' heads way before they need them. Now, personally, Miss Ochoa, my question to you is, because I've been talking for a little bit, so I pitch it to you, is in okay. middle school, we have a very... Oh, you give me the hard question. I do. I'm sorry. <laughs> in... The I mean, in middle school, though, really, mm-hmm. uh, it's a it's a weird time. It is, I said this earlier in the podcast. We have kids that are young. We have kids that have gone through a lot. We have teen. I mean, once they're in eighth grade, I mean, they are practically, you know, they're getting to be high schoolers. They're starting to be more mature on our campus. Specifically, they have been through a lot. They have probably seen more than most of the teachers have seen. They have come into contact with this stuff. And a lot of them read quote unquote, teacher friendly, school friendly books. And they're like, I don't like these because this isn't my real life. This isn't my lived experience, right? I have made readers of books. I'm sorry. I have made readers in my classroom out of books that are quote unquote, uh, not age appropriate technically for middle school, right? I have given them books that were like, Hey, check this out. I think you'll really dig it because you've told me things or whatever. And they're like, I'm obsessed with this. And now all they do is read, right? Like they, it literally creates readers, but, but I have books that I have in my room that I don't put on my shelf because I know not every kid should be able to just pick it up. I do. I have a secret shelf. (laughs) It's called Chastain's closet with a key. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And, but that here's the thing. I have that because this is kind of my sensor, but for you, like what is, What's the line? Is there a line of this should not exist in middle school? Well, I I tell you what, that that line, you know, we all know that I've been around for a while. So I've seen changes in society. And I can tell you in 82, 
things that I'm seeing now in school, they weren't happening. They weren't. You didn't That's talk about stuff like that. What was censorship back like, you know, in that time, though? Like, we're like, <laughs> I'm talking about it like it's so long ago. That's I apologize. Long ago. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, to kill a mockingbird, which I don't think is really bad, but it does have uh, the N word. So it was more like words that you don't want your kids saying. And I don't remember having a whole lot of. And people could probably correct me out there. Maybe I wasn't that much of a, or maybe I just protected myself as a reader. I'm, like I said, I'm pretty conservative. I don't go out there uh, in the wildlife, so to speak. But uh, as a matter of fact, we had a conversation today. The kids were asking me, they were telling me what their parents uh, do in, in their spare time. I told them I didn't really need to know that information. And they were like, well, you know, Miss Ochoa, I'm sure you do. And I went, no, I don't. I never have. And I, <laughs> never I don't do drugs I've never done that you know my parents they're still with me and they don't do those things they never were I was raised in a strong Christian uh, family I mean southern Baptist environment we didn't do stuff like that so and I didn't so um so that was that would probably you know my biggest one was to kill a mockingbird and it was over the language or Huck Finn and it was over it was over a racial, yep. more of a racial my, issue. My biggest mentor in life, I don't, I'm just adding to your story real quick, is oh, you're good. she was on the news. When I was in high school, my teaching mentor, she was defending Mark Was that Twain. her? Yes. Was that her? Yes. I remember when that happened. In our district. Was, she was, she's the one who had Mark, yeah. Yes. She was, they were doing Huck Finn. Yep. That's exactly right. Yep, I remember, but I didn't realize it was her. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I Which, do know his mentor, so that's why. I mean, so this is uh, I mean, that. That's what I'm saying. It's just adding to your story, like this is. Yeah, I mean, that's what that's what was considered censored, and I have a problem with those. Honestly, those books being censored that that was a time in history that yes, as negative as it could have been. I mean, that's how it was. So because that's how it was in history, we don't want to deal with that. I, I think I think having students. In high school, uh, these are high school books, I think having them at, at a more mature ability to think emotionally about their their feelings and who they are and their identity and all of that, why can't they deal with such things? And I mean, I would rather them deal with it in a book. And then when it happens in real life, they already have formed their opinion on how they're going to handle it. And you can talk about it. So I, I think there's some help there in doing that. So so what was banned back then is not the same as today. Today, we're now talking about the gender situation. We're talking about this open. That was not open when I grew up. You, you didn't. You, you didn't even talk about it. So now, what is our literature? The things they want to ban are those things that these kids are now identifying as. So is that okay? Is it, Do we want that on our shelves? Is that... Is that what they're trying to ban? You know, I mean, so I don't know. I think it's interesting. I don't know if it necessarily has to completely be taken off. Um, so I'm having a hard time with knowing what needs to be on my shelf now and what doesn't, to be honest, because of the change that I see in my kids. Well, and I think this is I think this is the heart of the matter, right? 
And this is probably mm-hmm. a nice way to close out at least this part. Maybe we have the two parter on this, but <laughs> yeah, the I think the it's it, what's important about choice, right? That's what we started this talk with. We talked about choice. We talked about why right. it's so important. We talked about it a lot on the podcast. Why having access to books is important. Donald Miller, Colby Sharp, Kelly Gallagher, Penny Kittle, Nancy Atwell. All you know, the research shows choice is essential to a lot of this. But in in broader terms, in, in terms that I think are deeply philosophical but also moral, is we have to go there are books have there it's more than just literacy. We're not just training workers, right? What we do shapes human beings. We sh- we mm-hmm. shape their beliefs about the world. We shape the beliefs about themselves. You know, one of the big Parts of the the current movement surrounding uh, the the race conversation is a lot of people are uncomfortable with certain things, and I don't want to get into that uh, on this episode. But there are there there are places where books about just the racial experience of people are being challenged, right? And right. people are like, "Well, so if you are going to ban these conversations, things that have happened, right?" Things that have happened to immigrants, people that have lived here, people that are that identify as non-white, and now you extend this into the gender world, right? People that don't identify as this. If you start banning these books and say they can't exist here, what are you telling kids? What are you and, and what are you telling their lived experience, right? Whether it's something you understand or not, there are people that understand. There are authors writing these things. We have we have worked so hard in our world of education to be like we public education is one of the few institutions that serves everyone it is mm-hmm. it is one of the few places where we accept everyone we accept yep. non-citizens we accept i mean we accept people we with do. mental disabilities we accept people we with uh unstable personality disorder i mean all of these things right we accept every walk of life and not many jobs can say this. And we do it without discrimination. Um, because of that, when we have, when we look at our books, when we look at our literature, when we look at what we're teaching, we have to go, I mean, does our schools represent the population that we're talking with, that we're working with, that we're serving? And there are groups of people who don't think that way because they don't understand. And on our campus, we don't, we don't have any of this, right? We are, our campus is extremely diverse, uh, to where people, people are very accepting of the fact that we have a lot of this because they understand what it's like to be, you know, the, uh, a marginalized group, right. Or traditionally Mm -hmm. marginalized group. Now it's, it's campuses that aren't that way, that are more monochronistic, that are more, you know, monotone in terms of where they are that are having more issues with this. Because of whatever. And I've heard many people, many experts say it's in those environments where you are a monoculture that these books matter the most because they need to understand that there's other people, right? They need to understand that there's other belief systems. There's all of this. And that that's an interesting debate, too. But I, this is... Uh, this is why all of this is messy, which is why I'm always so shy of saying anything directly like on Twitter or something like that, because it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, we spent an hour at this point 
kind of unpacking this from a lot of different ways. I don't think we have any solid answers. I mean, our solid answer is like, freedom's good. We should do this. We obviously need books that represent certain things. But what happens when that representation includes things that people find extremely vulgar or things like that? And that's that's when it becomes whatever. But I don't know. I mean, do you have have a final capstone tip for for this long conversation? I don't know if it's a good capstone or not, personally, but I think with me personally, uh, what's on my shelf, I try to make it as current as possible. I try to make it as uh, inclusive as possible, right? Within what I'm willing to defend as an individual teacher in my classroom, I do have certain values, and I know that those determine a little bit about what I am okay with on my shelf. However, I also take my students to our library. And in that library, I tell them they can get whatever book they want. And I don't discriminate against any of those books. And I feel like our school library is where the books that are questionable, if there are some questionable books, um, should be. And in my classroom library, they should reflect my students in the best way. I personally am going to stay on the, I guess, the the more calm value, like not the sexual stuff if it's in there and try not to be too violent, but uh, those kinds of things. But I, you know, I do want them to reflect a variety of cultures. Do I... It- I mean, it's going to be, and like I said, I hope people write in about this because I would love other people's experiences and thoughts and everything mm-hmm. and, and, and create a dialogue with people. I think it'd be interesting. But my closing idea is basically, you know, I don't carry everything in my shelf. You know, obviously I have lines, you know, anything that is like, I'm not carrying adult romance in my stuff, but right. the, you know, things like that. But they're, I, I consistently ask, you know, is this, like, you know, I have books on my shelf that I don't particularly like that I'm like, you know, whatever, but I have kids that have become readers because of those books. And that's when right. I become, it's like, well, you know, and I also, I send home a letter every year. I say, if your child brings home a book from my library that they do not like, you have the right to tell them no. I've had right. these conversations and, with parents. And, and, and I sent that same, uh, that same letter home this year. And I had one similar before. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think that is, uh, that's my way of counteracting it. It's like, there might be things that I disagree with here, but that doesn't mean other people shouldn't have access to it because I'm not, we're not a private school. We're not a Catholic school. You know, we're not right. anything like that. We're a public school. And that, that I think that's that right. changes the game. You know, if there's places you can go, if you want like a specific culture with a specific belief system, public school might not be it. But anyway, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Craft the Draft podcast. I hope you enjoyed us getting back to our hour long discussions. Uh, this is a complex issue. You know, we meandered through it and we had fun with it and discussed. We would love to hear your feedback. If you have any thoughts, challenges, ideas, concepts, whatever you want to add, send us a message at craftandraftworkshop.com or you can send us a direct message and hit submit. You can do all of that fun stuff. You can also DM me directly, but I can't promise it won't get lost in the clutter of things that happen. So that submit button is your best friend because that's how I filter things through the email box. But if you enjoyed this podcast, hit subscribe. We bring ideas like this and more to the podcast every single Friday without fail. Even when Pam Ochoa leaves me 
for a week uh, and travels. We still managed to get out some podcasts uh, and get them out there. But subscribe, leave a review if you enjoyed this episode. That's Pamela Chom, Jacob Chastain. This is Craft the Draft. Check out all of our other episodes. We've had more and more people listening to the podcast, so we greatly appreciate you. you. Greatly appreciate everyone who writes in and participates in the podcast. Hope you're doing safe. Hope you're doing well. Hopefully you are defending the right to read and write in your classroom. But for everything else, I know that we are here for you. <laughs> <laughs>